0: Hello and welcome to The Granter Podcast. My name's Anne Meadows, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Eleanor Catton. Eleanor's debut novel, The Rehearsal, was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award and the Dylan Thomas Prize, longlisted for the Orange Prize, and received a Betty Trask Award. Her second novel, The Luminaries, has been shortlisted for this year's prestigious Man Booker Prize. We discussed opium and gold, the ideas of the modern and the archaic, whether a good author can also be a sadist, and what it means to be a New Zealand writer today. Eleanor, thank you for being here today. Um, your latest novel, The Luminaries, begins with a young man from Edinburgh, Walter Moody, arriving in Hokitika, a small township in New Zealand which has grown up around the sudden rush for gold. The year is 1866, and a crime has been committed. I'd like to begin by asking you to read from The Luminaries.
1: Sure, thank you. The piece I'm going to read from is uh, comes from about halfway through the novel, uh, just before the book begins the town's most wealthy and in many ways uh, luckiest prospector disappears and much of the book is taken up with um, trying to figure out where he's gone and if he's been killed then, then who has murdered him and the piece I'm going to ra- read takes just um, ta- takes place uh, just before um, a seance conducted by one of the other characters uh, in an attempt to make contact with him The hanging sign outside the Wayfarer's Fortune had been repainted so that the jaunty silhouette with his Dick Whittington bundle was now walking beneath a starry sky. If the stars formed a constellation above the painted figure's head, Mannering did not recognise it. He glanced up at the sign only briefly as he mounted the steps to the veranda, noting as he did so that the knocker had been polished, the windows washed, the doormat replaced, and a fresh card fitted into the plate beside the door. Mrs. Lydia Wells, medium-spiritist, secrets uncovered, fortunes told. At his knock he heard female voices, and then quick footsteps on the stairs, ascending. He waited, hoping that it would be Anna who received him. There was a rattling sound as the chain was unhooked. Mannering touched the knot of his necktie with his fingers, and stood a little straighter, looking at his faint reflection in the glass. The door opened. Dick Mannering! Mannering was disappointed, but he did not show it. "'Mrs. Wells,' he exclaimed, "'a very good evening to you.' "'I certainly hope it will be, but it is not the evening yet,' she smiled. "'I would expect you of all people to know that it is dreadfully unfashionable to arrive early to a party. What would my mother call it? A barbarism.' "'Am I early?' Mannering said, reaching for his pocket watch in a pretense of surprise. He knew very well that he was early. He had desired to arrive before the others so as to get a chance to speak with Anna alone. Oh yes, look at that, he added, squinting at his watch. He shrugged and tucked it back into the pocket of his vest. I must have forgotten to wind it this morning. Well I'm here now, and so are you, dressed for the occasion. Very handsome, very handsome indeed. She was wearing widow's weeds, though her costume had been enhanced, as she might have phrased it, in various small ways, and these enhancements belied its sombre tone. The black bodice had been embroidered with vines and roses, stitched in a glossy thread, so that the designs winked and flashed upon her breast. She wore another black rose upon a band of black that was fitted as a cuff around the plump whiteness of her forearm, and a third black rose in her hair, pinned into the hollow behind her ear. She was still smiling. "'What am I to do now?' she said. "'You have put me in a dreadful position, Mr. Mannering. I cannot invite you in.' To do so would only encourage you to arrive early on other occasions. Before long you would be inconveniencing men and women of society all over town. But I cannot turn you out into the street either, for then you and I will both be barbarians, you for your impudence and me for my inhospitality. Seems there's a third option, said Mannering. Let me stand on the porch all night while you mull it over, and by the time you make up your mind I'll be right on time. There's another barbarism, said Mrs. Wells, your temper.' You've never seen my temper, Mrs. Wells. Have I not? Never. With you, I'm a civilized man. With whom are you uncivilized, one wonders? It's not a matter of with whom, said Mannering. It's a matter of how far. There was a brief pause. How grand that must have felt, said Mrs. Wells presently. When? Just then, said Mrs. Wells. What you just said. It must have felt grand. There's a certain style about you, Mrs. Wells. I'd forgotten it. Is there? "'Yes, a certain style.' "'Mannering reached into his pocket. "'Here's the tariff. Daylight robbery, by the way. "'You can't charge three shillings in Hokitika for an evening's entertainment, "'not if you're calling up Helen of Troy. "'The fellows won't stand for it, though I oughtn't to be giving you advice. "'As of this evening, you and I are direct competitors. "'Don't think that I don't know it. "'It'll be the Prince of Wales or the Wayfarer's Fortune "'when the boys turn out their pockets of a Saturday night. "'I'm a man to take notice of my competition, and I'm here tonight.' to take notice of you. A woman likes to be noticed, said Mrs. Wells. She accepted the coins and then pulled the door wide. Anyway, she added, as Mannering stepped into the hall, you're a rotten liar. If you'd forgotten to wind your watch, you wouldn't have been early. You'd have been late.
0: The part from the novel which you just read, the seance that takes place, it's clear to the people watching it, or to at least some of the people watching it, that it is largely a, a sham but there are ghosts and ghostly events and events in the novels, in the Luminary, sorry, which can only be explained as supernatural. So I suppose my, um, my first question is, how far into, into sort of modernity did you feel that, that the characters were? You know, Because they have, some of them still have these kind of archaic beliefs, but the novel backs them up. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I think that in a lot of
1: ways, the way that the novel is structured um, took root in a kind of slightly strange place. Um, when, when I was studying creative writing, I studied at the University of Iowa, the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and um, I was part of a wonderful class that Marilyn Robinson conducted there, uh, where she talked about um, um, paradox. Um, the, the the course was on transcendentalism and, and you know other and kind of uh, all of the authors associated with that term. But anyway, she, when when she was des- describing paradox, she described it as not an either or but a both and. So this mm-hmm. idea that that paradox is a state in which two things that you know seemingly contradict each other kind of can coexist. And um, in this class, she she talked for a long time about how uncomfortable we are with the state of paradox in kind of the modern day. That um, you know, uh, and I would say maybe a, co- a consumer culture or a materialist culture is partly to blame for that because um, uh, a company really wants you to identify strongly with one thing and to not identify with with you know other um, various ways that your identity can manifest. You know. Um, and so I loved this idea of paradox—that that you know that that uh, a both-and situation was much closer to so many um, ways in which we behave as people than an either-or. And this just really chimed with me emotionally, um, partly because it it fed into these other ideas of self-knowledge that I was exploring at the time. This idea that um, you know is is self-knowledge. The freest state that a person can inhabit, mm-hmm. or is it actually the most, um, uh, bo- uh, you know, uh, um, um, imprisoned state? <laughs> you know, um, that a person can inhabit. If if you are, if you are, fully uh, in fully cognizant of your own self, mm-hmm. does that mean you have to be that self, or that mean does that mean that you are free to not be that self? Um, anyway, so this is kind of a roundabout answer, but in in the novel really there are kind of two stories that are happening um, um, at once. And one is um, true to the novel's events, but impossible, Mm -hmm. you know, supernatural. And the other one is false, but plausible. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wanted to present the reader of the book with with that paradox at the end, that they could, they had to maybe choose which, you know, how, how to navigate between those two stories that they just... They just seen kind of play out um, over top of one another,
0: and these two parallel stories. Are, I mean, they're manifest on the on the page with the sort of the chapter headings and then the events within the chapter. Which kind of as as increasingly as the novel goes on, these two things become discrete rather than c- continuous. Is is that part of the uh, the paradox?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, in in constructing the book, I used. Um, uh, real astrological charts or astronomical charts really I found these um, wonderful star generators online and was able to plug in the latitude and longitude of the gold rushes and just have a look at what was happening in the skies and try and see if I could find a story there so that's really how the plot began um, I you know, I spent a couple of weeks really early on, that was maybe three or four years ago just watching the skies revolve around the heavens for about maybe the equivalent of about four or five years so between mm-hmm. 1865 and about 1869 and um and in, it was in 1866 that i saw the, the the most kind of interesting astrological movement just things that i wanted to follow um cool. and i guess you know in a, in a way that the the book is historically faithful to the to the position of the sky uh, mm-hmm. of i'm sorry of the position of the planets and their apparent motion through the Signs of the zodiac, much more than it's faithful to the events of the the gold rush. You know, the, of New Zealand history.
0: That's really interesting. Um, could you uh, could you talk a little bit more about what you saw in the stars in eighteen
1: sixty six? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, at this point in my research for the novel, I had. Read up about um, the kind of the figures, the main figures of the of the zodiac. So this is the the twelve signs, and then the the seven astrological planets are uh, really their so-called planets because they include the sun and the moon, which obviously aren't planets. Um, and I I felt like I had a fairly good idea of um, you know the the kind of principles that that uh, lie behind the twelve uh, signs of the zodiac and the forces of influence that, that are brought to bear upon those signs by the, by the seven planets. And so I kind of, you know, I I, I, knew, um, I knew what would be interesting if I saw it, um, what, what, what would be out of the ordinary. And the, the, the thing that attracted me to, to 1866, and to January 1866 in particular, was that um, there was a triple conjunction that I saw in um, Sagittarius. So just to kind of give this a bit of um, context, Sagittarius is the the house of the zodiac that Jung, the psychologist Jung, believed was the house of the um, collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, and as one of the houses, one of the kind of uh, segments of the heavens, um, that's associated with a certain stage of life or um, the evolution of a, a thought, if you like. Um, as as a house, it it. Uh, governs and is concerned with adventures and um, and you know adventures of a kind of an epic nature like kind of setting out from home and and leaving everything behind and going off to discover yourself. So I really like this immediately and what I saw was that um, the three planets in Sagittarius were um, Mercury, Mars and Jupiter. So they're these very um, you know Mars the planet of force, Jupiter the planet of kind of governance and um, um, you know the social contract, and then Mercury, the planet of, of reason and logic, who in my book is uh, kind of emblematized in Walter Moody, the character who arrives in the at the, at the very beginning. Um, so I really like this immediately. Like I I wasn't quite sure what I where I, where I was going to go, but I really liked that the book would begin with um, with Mercury, the 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 kind of the storytelling uh, planet of reason, entering the the house of, adve- of of adventure kind of epic adventures, it seemed very normal to me that with that in place, what would begin was would be the, somebody telling a story, and in the luminaries, the first person to speak is Balfour, the Sagittarian mm-hmm. character, who then is the kind of takes on the storytelling role. Um, the other thing I noticed, which was which, which I also kind of knew that there was something I wanted to follow was that these planets were just behind um, two other planets, the Sun and Venus, which were both in, in Capricorn. And so looking at the the way that 1866 rolled forward from the perspective of Hokitika, it was as if these three planets were following the Sun and Venus. And I really liked this idea that, the, that Mars, the planet of force, would be just behind Venus, the planet of desire. Mm. And there would be this kind of, um, you know, th- you know, similarly with um, planet. Uh, so the uh, Mercury, the planet of reason, being kind of a just a step behind the animating desires that were kind of fueling this mystery, mm. which seems very much like what a uh, a normal detective story. Um, you know how how it operates. The the uh, detective figure is always kind of one step behind until the moment mm. where they they're finally able to put everything together, and then they catch up with. Um, with the narrative which which happened in 1866.
0: (laughs) And Walter Moody that seems especially apt for Walter because he he does put together the mystery more or less of what's happened but uh, we learn quite early on that he has uh, no experience of love um, and is very unlucky when it comes to finding gold or sort of he's such a dreamer that he won't be able, really, it's quite clear, he won't be able to make his fortune. So the two animating mysteries at the, at the heart of the luminaries, love and gold, are, are beyond Walter.
1: Oh, that's a really interesting reading. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, I think that, I mean, an interesting, uh, I, I maybe an essential component of the Mercury um, figure in the classical zodiac is that Mercury is completely impartial. Mm-hmm. So, what this means is that um, a mercurial force can be um, uh, completely logical but also a, a, a trickster and a deceiver. And it's really, although you know, you're right to say that uh, Moody is, is kind of absented from a lot of the uh, main um, engines of the plot, he's, mm-hmm. kind of, he's, he's able to look at them as an outsider, which is a privilege that, that none of the other um, characters have. Um, at the same time, he's he is the one who kind of engineers this this false story, um, you know, l- later on in the novel. He's instrumental in kind of um, bringing this, this false story to light, really, and constructing it.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. Um, it was interesting to me that he'd come from Edinburgh, because that's one of the homes of the detective story as well, because Conan Doyle was... Was writing in Edinburgh when he was writing Sherlock Holmes, even though it was set in London. And oh, that's something... wonderful! I didn't know that. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, that wasn't deliberate. Cool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, this this ad- astrological structure that you've used—I mean, it's an incredible—it's um, an incredible sort of constriction, isn't it? A thing to place on yourself as a as a novelist that you've kind of got this uh, everything sort of mapped out for you. Did did that feel that that did that ever come into conflict with what you wanted to write? or
1: No, it didn't actually. I, I felt it was a real... Um, it, it was always exciting, the, this idea of having this challenge kind of placed on me from the very beginning. Um, yeah, I have, a, I have a friend in the States who's been for a long time calling this novel my inconvenient novel, you know, because <laughs> you know, I was mired in this book for quite a long time and um, kind of not, not really being able to see the end. Uh, and not knowing whether the astrological conceit would would work, um, was kind of made for a very stressful <laughs> for, um, three or four years. Um, but I don't know. There was there was something about that inconvenience, about having to to solve a puzzle really, um, that really unlocked my imagination or made or made mm. me work imaginatively so much harder to to um, to kind of bring it to life. It's yeah. I would say it's not. It's not as all, at all as um, maybe academic a project as you might believe. Just because uh, the zodiac is so inherently psychological, mm-hmm. and the way that it it, um, it it behaves internally, it's so it's so psychological. I've, one of the things that came to me quite late in the process is that the the seven planets are really um, you could refigure them to in it, you know in, in in a way that would um, reflect the um, the Freudian ego and, and superego in the sense that um, if you take away mercury who's the you know the who's really language and, and our kind of powers of intellect um, that's what he re- or that's what that represents not he <laughs> um, the the remaining six planets all operate in pairs and it's in that pair that they kind of have a push-pull relationship. So, mm. um, the sun and the moon, um, or you know, known by astrologers as the luminaries or the lights, um, are, you know, in my mind re- represent the ego in the in the sense that the sun is your outward ego, and the moon is your your kind of interior ego. It's the the side of your personality that you have to you can you're in conversation with, but you kind of have to. Um, conceal in order to be that kind of solar self you know um, uh, Venus and Mars similarly uh, mm. um, for me kind of in a weird way represent the id, the Venus being your desires and Mars being how you're going to execute those desires or fulfill them and then Jupiter and Saturn are the superego, you know they're kind of governing your more social consciousness and so once I kind of Started reading the zodiac in a very psychological way. Each uh, uh, horoscope that I generated for the book, I, I knew that there was a story there. I just had to mm-hmm. kind of figure it out somehow. I had
0: to, I had to make it work. That's wonderful. Um, I do <laughs> want to ask you about the the structure again because I'm just so I'm so interested that um, that you that you chose this and um I think it's wonderful I think it's completely wonderful and I think that you're absolutely right that it just fits so perfectly with the plot it's not something superimposed I mean it's it's it's, you know inherent in in everything that you've written but um I read that originally you had intended to use the golden ratio um to to structure the book and the loom the Luminaries is, is, is a very different novel to The Rehearsal, but The Rehearsal also played around with time and structure. So it, it seems to me, as a reader of your work, that these are things that you're drawn to again and again, mm. that complexity attracts you. I, I wonder what you would say about that.
1: Yeah, well, the, I mean, the, the golden ratio is kind of still in The Luminaries. It was one. It was the one structural aspect that I just wasn't able to pull off. Um, if I had pulled it off, the, the book would have been around about I think 150 words, a th- thousand words longer than than it, than it is. So that that was the reason why it had to go. Um, but it's uh, still in the book, in the um, the, the section dividers. Um, the the little symbol that we use to kind of show the passage of time is the Greek symbol phi, mm-hmm. which is um, which I really love as a symbol for um, what I was trying to do in the luminaries because it's a it's a circle. Um, over which the capital letter I has been superimposed. And I love that there was there are these two symbols of selfhood, first of all the 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 circle which kind of denotes unity, and then second of all, the capital letter I, which in English obviously means the self, kind of existing together. I thought that was kind of spoke to the heart of the book in a nice way. Um, so very briefly, the book uh, talks about, How to conduct relationships with um, with other people in ways that is in in ways that are fully honouring of their selfhood as human beings. Mm. And what Buber talks about in this book is how extremely difficult this is. How extremely difficult it is to regard another human being and not see them as simply um, the means to an end, but actually to apprehend them and interact with them as another soul or as a thou um a thou to your eye and you know for them hopefully it'll be vice versa and he talks about um i thou relationships which him for him are just um kind of so potent and so spiritually pure that they can only be achieved every now and again um even in a loving relationship it's impossible to kind of to sustain this for a very long time because it would just Mm -hmm. be too exhausting and um too impractical, really. Um, and this, they're, they're modelled on the relationship that a human ought to have, or ideally will have with God. So this is the um, kind of where the theological aspect comes in. And there are other relationships called I-it relationships, which are much um, uh, more ordinary than I-thou relationships, and you know, not at all, um, <laughs> not at all as preferable, um, where uh, you are. Regarding somebody else as maybe the means to an end or as mm. as um, you're, you're seeing them through the lens of your own experience rather than Seeing them as a kind of an experience Have a, of their <laughs> in, in their own right um, But anyway, I was I, I read this book and I, I just um, It meant so much to me and I had it was going around my mind um, and kind of I was Every absolutely everything I touched I was trying to see it in Martin Buber <laughs> ways, you know and um, around about this time, I was also reading um, the book Gödel Escher-Bach, um, which is a, a, an, another very wonderful book about um, the idea of repeating patterns in, um, in mathemat- you know, mathematical patterns in music and in art. And the book deals with um, Gödel, the mathematician, um, M.C. Escher, the um, painter, and um, Bach. And talks about um, systems that are capable of repeating themselves, or sim- systems that are capable of self-replicating. Um, anyway, I, 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 you know, also really recommend this book. And um, when I was reading Goodleishabak, I was having a conversation with friends of mine who were also writers, and we were wondering why it was that that those three artists, why it was that none of them were artists that worked with words, mm. and whether it was possible to make a a self-replicating system using language, um, you know, which is quite a different project than using using paint or using music or using mathematics. And it, it at some point, these these two ideas merged, and I started looking at the golden ratio and thinking, would it be possible to 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 make this work structurally, um, to make a book that is structurally. Um, Predicated on the golden ratio in some way, mm-hmm. and if if I could do that, would we would we regard it as a thing of beauty in the same way that we regard paintings that are predicated on the golden ratio as a thing of beauty? Um, you know, so I, I this this was all very early on in the writing process, and it kind of fed into the um, the the writing of the book. Um, but you know, as I said, I had to abandon it um, because <laughs> it, it was just a little bit too unwieldy. But the, the ideas are there.
0: It's fascinating. Um, Just to go back briefly to what you were saying about I-there relationships, Um, The Luminaries has, there are a great deal of sort of unfortunate and sometimes violent things that happen, but one of the motivating forces of the novel is is love and compassion. And obviously there's um, Anna and Emery. I'm assuming that that's an I-there relationship, you know, that they're, they're sort of twinned and there are all these wonderful images of them doubling each other when, when they find each other again. Um, but there are also sort of small, extraordinary acts of compassion. I'm thinking of um, the, the woman who saves Ahsuk when he's, when he's been beaten and uh, various other sort of small instances. So I mean, compassion is obviously very important to you as a writer. Is it, is it important as a reader as well? Do you, are you drawn to works which are sort of kind?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. I think that that I think that literature ought to be redemptive um, in some way. I think that it's it's very difficult to to love a book that doesn't have love in it, mm. and loving a book is really important. Um, I think to a reader because it's sustaining. It's you know. Um, you know, I th- I think back to, to books that I read when I was a, a a young adult or even as a child, and the love that I felt for certain characters is so intense. It's it it almost definitely surpasses a lot of the like real people in my life from those from those years. You know, and then you, when you read a book again, and you find that the characters changed a little bit, and it's this very. It's almost like meeting an old lover in a bar or something, and you kind of think, "Oh, look at us now! We're so <laughs> yeah, we're so we're so different, and yet we're so the same,
0: and we, we have these shared memories." Um, could you tell us? Could you tell us a little bit about the uh, the books that you loved, that you still love, or the characters you love?
1: Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, I I was really fortunate when I was growing up because my mum was a children's librarian, so um, she was just always bringing books home. Um, uh, for for me and my siblings to read, and so a lot of um, a lot of the classic books of children's literature, you know, um, a book like a little the um, a little princess by um, Frances Hodgson Burnett, um, I must have read I don't know <laughs> fifty or hundred times, um, yeah, and also and also a lot of uh, um, yeah, there's a, in, in particular there's a um, an, a New Zealand novelist, Maurice Gee, who wrote this just absolutely phenomenal trilogy for um, for young people that is set in um, in a, on a planet called O, um, which is ac- accessible through um, you know this kind of portal um, in the South Island of New Zealand. And um, the brilliant thing about this book is that you know the first book of the trilogy operates very much like a normal. Um, um, fantasy where there's people overthrown and um, good triumphs over evil and, and all the rest of it. But in the second book, um, the characters in the first book, who um, the, the young children who, who vanquished the, the, um, the evil lord, um, there has been, in the intervening time, there has been this religion that has uh, been built up around these events and the, the children have become, against their knowledge and definitely against their will, they've become mm. gods in this culture. And so when they return to this world, they introduce themselves and immediately are arrested for having blasphemed because they have taken on, they've spoken the words that, that you know, uh, that by speaking their own names, they, you know, they've, they've committed a terrible crime. And it's just, a it's absolutely wonderful. And that's only the second book of the trilogy, you know. That was another book that was, another trilogy of books that was really important to me.
0: And I, I read somewhere that you're thinking of writing a book for children or older children. Is that is that true?
1: Yeah, I mean I've had a I've had a a, a fantasy thingy in my head for a long time. Um, I think that a lot of it was exercised. That's maybe with an exercise with an O or with an E. I'm not quite sure. In the writing of the Luminaries, because you know the the Luminaries is such a plot driven. Um, Um, Book and, in a way, kind of behaves quite a lot like a children's novel. I think, Um, even though um, you know, even even though the the content would maybe make that make that impossible. But even you know what? Yeah, I don't know.
0: No, that's very interesting. I mean, I suppose that. the good the good end happily in the luminaries or most of them in the bad end unhappily you know it's kind of got that classic novel structure where most you know most people are redeemed or, or, or punished
1: yeah yeah I've always been really taken by that um the advice that Chekhov gave in that letter where he says no one must be humiliated mm. um and how important this is for a writer to remember to humiliate nobody and to to give everybody a chance at being good um at, at kind of doing well um one of the reasons why i think that's a really smart piece of advice to give um, to a writer is that you as, as a writer of fiction you really have you're really an absolute ultimate god mm-hmm. you can make anything happen you've there's no con- constraints on you whatsoever you can bend the laws of the universe if you want you can ma- invent new ones and what what your characters are capable of is entirely up to you mm. and so i think making creating worlds where what characters are capable of is actually very sm- small and kind of mean and narrow is your your you're, you're, you're I don't know, there's there's something about the whole project of what you're doing that becomes compromised then. Mm.
0: Um, Yeah. That's interesting. (laughs) No, that's really interesting. One of my favourite novels um, is uh, is Madame Bovary, which is a a classic and an incredibly beautifully uh, written piece of work. But I think that ultimately it's quite a, a cruel novel, you know, that Emma is given all of this time to to develop, but her mind is, is constrained at the beginning and her ending is incredibly violent um, and, and cruel. And I remember reading that um, uh, various theories abound, but I remember reading that Flaubert had based her on his, his former lover and read his former lover's letters in order to form the character of Madame Bovary and that it was essentially a, a sort of a piece of revenge. Oh, that's very interesting. yeah, yeah, so I guess um I, mean, it, I agree with you that I think that that there has to be love in a book, but I think sometimes that that love can come from the reader and that that compassion can go towards a character without it being the author's necessarily the author's sole intention, that sometimes we love characters, even though maybe their creators haven't loved them quite as much.
1: Yes, no I, yeah, I completely believe I, I, I completely agree with that. I think one of the interesting things about Madame Bovary is how it begins. And Charles uh, Bovary is is shamed at the very beginning of the book. And we, in in that way I think, weirdly, the book does actually engender a kind of compassion in us. Because we Mm -hmm. start seeing Charles as Emma sees Charles, from the very beginning. And I like this idea of compassion being, you know, from the Latin com, meaning just with. So just a feeling with somebody. And I think that, um, you know, like I've actually, another really classic example of this is the beginning of um, Anna Karenina, which for me operates in a, quite a similar way, where we, the, the very first time we see Anna, she's coming into a, an environment where she's solving the problem. She's coming into this, this environment of adultery and, and people not trusting one another and every, the whole household being in disarray. And she comes in and she has this most wonderful, calming influence on this, this kind of fractured family. And so, so we begin to love her. We begin to see her as, um, you know, compassionately as, you know, the person whose side we want, <laughs> we want to be on, really. And that will sustain us then for the, for the entire novel. She can do um, really quite awful things and quite thoughtless things to the people mm. around her. But we've, that compassion is kind of in place.
0: But she also has a, a very cruel end.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things about the ending of The Luminaries was that we, when I was reading, um, when I was doing my research for writing the book, I was reading a lot of Victorian fiction. And I read, um, I think I read Madame Bovary, then Anna Karenina, and then The House of Mirth, all just back to back. And I just ended up so depressed about them. <laughs> You know what? What could possibly happen to a, a you know, a strong female heroine? Mm. And I think that one of the things, you know, about the the fates of these women, uh, which obviously were written in a very different time, is this idea that there is nothing more scary. Well, maybe was let's say was nothing more scary at, at the time when these books were published, than a woman with her eyes open, a woman who had mm. kind of woken up to herself. And so there's nothing to do in these books but to get rid of her because Mm -hmm. there's the the idea of there being any other option but to kill her Mm -hmm. or for her to die is is just too terrifying to comprehend. And so I knew from the start that I really didn't want to do that in the luminaries, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but um, one of the things that um, happens in the book is that um, the two luminary characters Anna and Emery effectively change places Mm. so they have a kind of um a kind of a dance I I guess a cosmic kind of interchange that goes that goes on and Anna ends up taking on um a lot of well well, really all the the solar qualities in the relationship and really ends up in a much better place in the Mm. novel than than Emery does and so I was I was quite I was quite uh uh, deliberate about that. Like I didn't. I didn't want to kill her off at the end of the um, at the end of the book. And really, when the book begins, uh, again, this is kind of not. I don't, I don't think this is quite a spoiler, but um, it's rumored that she has um, attempted suicide. Mm. And the, I, I, what I wanted to do in in kind of exploring that territory is show up how how readily and how almost greedily the men around her. Are uh, insisting on this reading of this event that the idea that um, that that kind of her her body is her own to do with what she pleases, mm-hmm. even if what that is is you know drug herself senseless with opium or whatever is kind of more painful and more difficult for these men to understand mm-hmm. than the idea that that she might have might have tried to kill herself.
0: And there's, she says, um, I think to to Gascoigne that uh, every man wants his whore to be wretched, and there is clearly a, a comfort for the the men who, even the ones um, like uh, like Edgar Clinch who love her, they love her when she's insensate and you know when she's drugged up, and they love her her wretchedness. They don't want to help her out of it. No one no one really tries to help her out of it except Emery. Mm.
1: Yeah, and I think that that comes back to Martin Buber actually. Um, the way that, that I kind of conceive of the um, the ensemble of the luminaries is that Anna and Emery, the the Sun and the Moon characters, are very unreal to all of the men mm. of the Zodiac in a way. I feel like um, they project all of their unhappiness onto Anna um, and also all of their hiddenness, all of the things about themselves that, that they they wouldn't show to the other men. Anna kind of becomes this repository for all of these... These kind of uh, um, these emotions and and thwarted desires, and on the other hand, Emory becomes the repository for for all the things that are kind of um, sunny and and outward looking and and kind of fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas actually on paper he's he's not terribly lucky at all. He's just perceived to be lucky because mm-hmm. he's um, he's kind of enthusiastic, naive. He's young. He's um, and he gets the girl. You mm-hmm.
0: know. <laughs> One of the really thrilling things about reading The Luminaries is that you are completely immersed in this in this world in your 1865 and 1866 Hokitika, which is a small town on the west coast of New Zealand, um, and it rains a great deal, mm-hmm. and it's it's often very grey, and there are all these wonderful descriptions of, of the water um, that goes up the river to where the, the camps are and the camps themselves, and it's I mean, there's no way that this novel could have been written about anywhere else because, obviously, the Hocketika stars are the stars that determine the characters. So, I guess um, it feels it feels like a, a huge departure for you from the rehearsal you know, you've written this amazing New Zealand novel, and I wanted to just sort of know, was there ever a point at which you thought you'd set it anywhere else, or was it always was it always going to be Hokitika? And how did you find I mean, when mm-hmm. <laughs> How did this happen?
1: Well, um, I grew up in Christchurch, which is on the east coast of the um, South Island, so kind of uh, basically across the island from Hokitika, but you have to, um, obviously there's mountains in the way, um, <laughs> there's mountain paths in the way. And so, um, the the road to the west coast it's called the Arthur's Pass road and um, also the, the the west coast both north and south of Pocateka were um, really big part uh, you know really big part of my childhood my family's quite outdoorsy and so we always used to um, uh, you know go tramping and and um, and spend a lot of time in the outdoors there I think that um, one of the earliest uh, sparks for the book actually came when I was about 14. Um, My parents are enthusiastic environmentalists and for a while we didn't um, own a car when I was growing up Uh, but they had uh, a couple of tandem bikes and then we all had single bikes as well. And uh, it was a rite of passage in in my family that each one of the kids uh, would get taken by dad um, on a tandem bike trip um, over to the west coast and back. So we would um, leave from Christchurch and go over the Lewis Pass, a bit north, and then um, you know, kind of put our hand in the ocean, in the Tasman Sea, and then come back over the um, the other mountain pass. And I did that with my dad when I was um, when I was fourteen. And um, and I think that I, I just had a completely different appreciation for the size of the island and the the just the landscape. I think because mm. by virtue of the factors that when you're on a bike, everything's going past really slowly, and it's also jolly hard work, so you're kind of, you've got this personal relationship with with each hill, <laughs> you know, as you're kind of um, struggling up it. Um, so that, yeah, I think that that, that started, um, that something started on that trip where I kind of felt, I felt a kind of kinship with that that landscape that maybe I wouldn't have felt if I'd only been making those journeys by car. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that I ever considered a, a gold rush story that was not a West Coast gold rush story, because the the West Coast gold rush was by no means the only gold rush mm. in New Zealand. There was, um, by far, the bigger um, gold rush was in Otago a few years prior to the West Coast strike, or first West Coast strike, and there were also other ones, um, you know, in the North Island and in various places. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's hard, it's hard for me to answer that really, because it's the place and time seem so
0: married uh and yeah most of the characters in your novel are, are not native new zealanders they've come from somewhere else um i think with with a couple of exceptions with um Tam, is it Tamati? Oh, Tavare, Tavare. Yeah. Um, and uh, with the the banker um, Charlie Frost. Is that yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. He's, he's the um, reluctant New Zealander. He's the reluctant New Zealander, and I was I was interested in that reluctance. You know, I mean, he's very mm. very. He feels sort of um, as though the, he he talks a lot about Britain, and he you know pretends essentially that he's mm. from there, and he distances himself from his family. Um, so the New Zealand that, for the characters, is is very new. I mean, did that did that sense of newness and strangeness help you to to write the novel? Was it was it interesting to you, to see your yeah, country I mean, like
1: that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Like, I think that um, one of the burdens, um, strange burdens that exist for, not only New Zealand writers but probably all um, relatively young countries who don't yet have kind of the kind of a ballast of national literature behind them that they can really kind of uh, in, invest in and, and feel proud of. You know, obviously there's a wonderful tradition of New Zealand literature in, um, in in our country but, you know, there's there's a lot of uncertainty as well about our place in the mm. world. Um, we're a very small nation and kind of have a, you know, a little brother kind of complex with respect, or a little sister complex maybe, with respect to um, our, our place in, you know on the world stage. Um, and I think that one of the ways that this manifests is in, in New Zealand literature, in contemporary New Zealand literature, is this curious blankness on the part of place. You know people will write urban novels mm. and it's very clear that they're New Zealand novels. Um, there's not very many cities to choose from, it's probably one of about five that you know that they're set in. Um, But there'll be this kind of, um, fear about locating them too precisely, Mm -hmm. which I completely understand, you know, I, I feel this as well as a writer that, you know, to, to name a New Zealand road or I don't know, to, to, um, name a New Zealand celebrity is to kind of doom your writing to be only read and understood and loved by other New Zealanders, which, um, you know, is a, is a small pool if you'd if you look at just the reading public. Um, yeah, and so I think maybe, you know, what, one thing that was helpful in the gold rush was the fact that everybody was from somewhere else. Mm. And looking at New Zealand through strange eyes, you know, and kind of seeing um, the... See, seeing it as a blank canvas onto which they could project what it, whatever it was that they wanted to project. Um but the other more personal um uh, reason for that is that most of the book the kind of the the laying down of the foundations of the book happened when I was overseas mm-hmm. and I, and so I think that I was seeing seeing new zealand i was had been living in the states for um a couple of years when i when I started really writing it and I think that I, a lot of my nostalgia for being back home and um kind of the the grandeur and kind of the awesomeness of the landscape got written into the book because I was missing it so much.
0: That's interesting. That comes across in the writing. It does come across as a a love Mm -hmm. song to a place. And as I was reading it, um, uh, I kept sort of trying to, you know, imagine what it would be like to be there now and yeah I mean it's a great advert for New Zealand Tourist Board I am mean, obviously that makes it sound like a capitalist enterprise which I'm not at all trying to imply. No it, but. I'm,
1: I'm quite <laughs> pleased with it actually because one of the um, the decisions in of the New Zealand Tourist Board I don't know if there is such a thing but Tourism New Zealand that has really bothered me in recent years is how much the um, the Lord of the Rings has been um, embraced by the nation as kind of a metaphor for our country mm-hmm. and I think that the extremely problematic thing about this is that there are no native peoples in the Lord of the Rings and in the movies which you know it's fantastic that they were filmed in New Zealand and they um, you know the, the that story of rising in the film industry by Peter Jackson and the, his, his companies and that kind of thing is a wonderful success story but I think it's extremely problematic as a national um, myth mm. because all of the Maori actors and who who were in the movies are all playing orcs. Um, and I hadn't
0: realised that. That's really disturbing. Yeah, yeah. and I think
1: it it really it really upsets me actually because I think that um, you know this this idea that as a country we will have taken on a mythology that is essentially an idealised Britain mm. um, is just. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's horrific to me. You know, I, th- I think that one of the things that is the um, that we ought to be most proud of in New Zealand is the fact that our foundational document as a country is our constitutional document as a treaty. Mm. Um, and I, you know, it's just it's the bicultural uh, nature of, of New Zealand society is obviously has problems of its own and and is far from being perfect. But um, I, I feel like that is the, that is the thing that, that is the flag we ought to be flying if we, if we should be flying any kind of flag at all. Um. <laughs>
0: well, it's possible, I'm, I'm right in saying that it's possible that there will be a, a, a film or a television series of the luminaries, so have you, have you started casting in your mind? Oh yes, it's, it's
1: deeply tragic actually. While I was writing the book, I, um, on my iPhoto on my, on uh, my laptop, I came up with a, an entire cast of characters, and sometimes when I, when writing was difficult or you know when I was trying to imagine a scene, I would just open my iPhoto and click through them really fast <laughs> and kind of imagine them talking to one another.
0: That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Can I um, put in a bid for Dominic West for Carver? You know, from from oh. The Wire.
1: Oh, good. Yeah, I think he'd be good. Yeah, I think he'd be very good. I had Clive Owen,
0: but you're you yeah, that, that's a good. <laughs> 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 well, that's pretty good actually. <laughs> i've thought about it i've thought about it quite a lot <laughs> i'd like to ask you about the the word hokitika the name Hokotika. Oh, yeah. um because tamare oh Taufare. Taufare. yeah okay but Taufare um is asked by another character in fact he's paid by another character to um to explain what Hokotika means mm-hmm. and he says that it means around and then back again mm-hmm. beginning which I think is just beautiful, um, but that's kind of how the book operates as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it starts two weeks after the day on which it ends, so you have a book mm-hmm. that goes around and then back again. So I, I would like to end uh, this podcast by asking you a bit about beginnings and circular beginnings and what mm. they what they mean to you as a writer. What does it,
1: yeah? Mm, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that was a, a lucky accident. Actually, I didn't know that Haka meant that until I started my research. Um, it's more, it's it's translated more simply as just the place of return. Um, but I really liked this idea that, um, you know, if you kind of spend some time with that phrase, the place of return, what mm. it actually really means, like, are you? Is this is the place to which you return, or from which you have returned? You know, and there's this kind of very circular um, idea behind that. And another thing that I liked that was another happy accident, which is that um, Dunedin, the town that um, uh, you know also, also figures into the into the plot in a, in a certain way, means place situated at a corner um, in Maori. The Maori word for it is ote poti, um, So I quite like that as well. Um, yeah, I mean I think that with beginnings in general is uh, they're they're very difficult choices for a writer, where, where to begin and where to end. And when I know when I was at creative writing school, much of the advice that was given from lectures and kind of, you know, the tried and true kind of creative writing advice that, that you hear quoted a lot had to do with um, um, beginning stories as close as possible to the end. Mm. Um, you know, there were a lot of um, jokes about, uh, you know, a, a story would be handed in for workshop and the way to improve it would be to um, throw away the first page and throw away the last page. And then all of a sudden it would be a really good story. So this idea that um, amateur writers tend to burden the beginning and end of their work with with kind of um, unnecessarily, unnecessary acceleration and deceleration that actually um, that's kind of not a part of the real story. Yeah, so it's, a, it, it's definitely a, you know... A, where, where to begin and where to end is informing the shape of any work. And it's a, it's a choice that a, um, that, a, that, that a writer has to make. I knew from the very uh, beginning of writing The Luminaries that I wanted to write a circular novel in the sense that um, uh, I wanted the book to have 12 parts and for each of the parts to take place on a single day that was spaced out around um, the wheel of the zodiac or around mm-hmm. the calendar year. Um, yeah, and I can't I can't remember where the um where the decision to cross back into the previous year um came into the mix, but once it was there it was there to
0: stay. Ellie, you're you're on the man booker long list. Congratulations. Thank you. Um how does it feel?
1: Oh it's well it's I mean it's so exciting, you know. The um uh, one of the very dramatic and exciting things about the booker is that nobody knows even who's up for consideration until the long list comes out so it's this huge fanfare and um, I think that just by virtue of being a New Zealander and the fact that New Zealand writers very seldom make the make the long list it's only actually happened three times before um, everybody back home has just been so happy about it and I've had um, everybody's grandma has come up to me and given me a pat on the back so <laughs> it's quite nice actually you know I, I I'm very firm in the belief that literature is not a competitive sport mm. in, in, in any way and that we're all kind of doing the same thing and hopefully for similar reasons, if not if not the same reasons. But it does feel really nice to be, um, um, to have had this kind of, uh, um, you know, extremely good news and to realise that I, I feel very much like a New Zealand writer, which it t- kind of took this, this kind of quite extreme and... Alarming, at times alarming exposure to realise that I'm actually very proud to be a New Zealand writer. So that's that's been a happy, um, a happy uh, offshoot of the of, of the long list coming out.
0: You've come home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's <laughs> wonderful. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you. That was fun. Thanks for listening to the Granta podcast, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granta, or to hear more about our authors and events, go to www.granta.com.